Please excuse the audio issues that we had with this episode. I recently got a new microphone and uh, we should have spent a little bit more time figuring out a way to make it sound uh, smoother. So I do apologize, but we are working on it. You're listening to Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. Hey, Sean. How's it going? David, I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. That I've been uh, I've been pretty distracted this week trying to translate the, uh, oh, shoot, what's the name now, the, the Haustwang uh, poem, the one that was really hard to make sense of last week. I'm actually retranslating it, looking at the Old Norse, trying to make it actually sound like a good poem rather than this weird kind of convoluted language. Um, nice. So that's been my one of my things I've been busy with. And then, uh, yeah, we've been uh, wrestling with your uh, camera settings this morning. So we're... It's really pissing me off. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is, well, so like, it's funny because like, I know like I my camera on my new computer is not working and uh, yours is, but just to make things consistent, we're neither of us are on camera right now. So I'm talking to the letter D on where David's face would be. But the good news is that I got a microphone finally. I, I'm not using the headset that is yep. so uh, bad quality. Identical microphones because clearly we're both uh, perfectionists and like the uh, <laughs> podcast be very professional, right? Yeah, it only took me a year and a half to get an actual microphone. So hopefully this doesn't sound horrible. Hopefully we sound good, even if we can't see each other today. Anything Anything else, Sean? Anything else for uh, for updates? Yeah, I'm I'm retrying to teach myself German through Duolingo. I know in some of our earlier episodes, we um, I, I failed at doing so, but I'm on day six now of Duolingo. And uh, I'm also trying to reteach my, well, not reteach, I'm retrying to learn Python coding, uh, the programming language. So That's very um, outside of work, I've been very productive in that regard. Yeah, if we're going to keep pushing each other on a German Duolingo, maybe I should come back. I keep going back and forth whether I'm trying to learn uh get more fluent in my Spanish or try to actually learn uh, German so that, uh, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Like I just wanted to relearn German. My, my wife and I just booked an Airbnb, uh, in Munich for in September, we're going to Oktoberfest this year. Um, so that's going to be in about five months, but we're in the phase of, uh, watching travel YouTube videos and we're also going to hit uh, Austria and Switzerland to add a couple countries to our list. Um, that's a, so that's a real good reason to be uh, working on your German, I would say. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, I guess it's going to be my third time in Oktoberfest. It's uh, my definition of heaven. Probably not unlike Valhalla, but I could be wrong. I think that's the, the closest you can get on earth to uh, Valhalla would be uh, yeah, giant uh, giant drinking hall with the uh, Valkyries bringing you ale. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, I guess the, with the addition of uh, huge pretzels that taste delicious. You know, you'd think Thor would have a little poem where he talks about his love of pretzels, but I don't think we, I think we lost that one. I'm sure there's one out there. We never know. But anyway. We'll have to write that one for more fan fiction. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We'll get like Chat GPT to do it or something. Um that would that would really save us a lot of time, actually. Yeah. Ooh, I might um, yeah. Um but we can today. Or what Yeah, yeah, about. definitely. So we can go ahead and get started. I know you have some obligations uh coming up here shortly. Um so last week we reviewed what David and I considered to be Thor's younger years. Um where Thor was a strong god who was perhaps in his physical prime and clearly a strong warrior who, you know, instilled fear into the hearts of giants and his enemies. However, he was also a god who had a lot to learn and was often prone to shortcomings not related to those physical abilities. So we saw Thor lose 
um, to the forces of nature via trickery, um, as we discussed in Utgarda Loki, um, Utgarda Loki using magic to trick him. Um, we also saw him lose a game of insults with his father, Odin. And he also failed to catch and kill Jormungand, or the world serpent of Ragnarok, while fishing. So then we talked a little bit about the potential lessons that Thor may have learned while getting knocked down a peg. And, uh, you know, whether or not Thor would grow and learn and like use those lessons as a result. Um, because as, as we all know, as humans, sometimes we do need to get like knocked down a peg to, you know, get back up stronger than ever. So we're going to be further discussing Thor's uh, growth, I guess, or his journey of growing. Um, we're going to be talking about his journey to Garrett's court. We're going to be talking about his wedding where he dressed in drag. We're going to talk about how Thor outsmarted the dwarf Alvis. And uh, David, I also didn't mention this last week, um, but I also am briefly going to note Thor's role in his brother Baldur's funeral. Um, since we discussed um, a perhaps different approach to fatherhood on Odin's part for the two of them, because Bal Baldur was like the the pride of the Aesir. And as we saw in Harbard's Law, Odin, you know, went out of his way to make Thor feel like crap. Um, so like what, what would, um, the death of Balder do to change maybe Odin's, um, approach to that fatherhood. Um, but then we're also going to be discussing Thor's death at the battle on Vigrid fields at Ragnarok. Um, so David, how does that sound? It's good. And before we get into these stories, I'm just thinking about a few of the, the significance of kind of Thor's uh, journey up to this point, right? As I, as I talked about the, uh, the hero's journey, and it really probably would be good for me to reread, um, Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero of a Thousand Faces, where he really kind of defined that idea, the archetype of the hero's journey. Um, I also have another book by, I believe it's a, he's not Jungian, but he's like a more Freudian psychoanalyst, uh, Otto, Otto somebody, um, that talks about a lot of the hero journeys where they're humans that become heroes, right? That Thor knows he's a god from the beginning. Not every story captures the full hero's journey, kind of the, the most complete it could be. Um, I think there's a few like old Babylonian myths that capture it pretty well. Thor always knows that he's a god, right, from the beginning. But there is the part where, you know, Thor, before he has his hammer, right? I think it's more of a Loki story of how Thor gets his hammer, right? Is, is there any stories about Thor without, before he has his hammer? Or do we not really see that? Uh, I do. I don't believe so. Um, I think when we, I know, like, as, as I mentioned, like every episode with the disclaimer that there is like really no Norse timeline of events. Um, we know the beginning, we know the end, and we can assume everything in the middle is just somewhere in the middle. But um, I'm pretty sure most stories involve Thor having his hammer, or it's specifically mentioned that Thor does not have his hammer, so we knew the hammer existed. And I do think that um, Loki kind of cutting off Sif's hair um, was like the was one of the earlier stories, if there was like a timeline. And I guess theoretically, we saw Thor get angry at, at Loki for cutting off his wife's hair. But um, the short answer is no, David. <laughs> no, well, and, it's, and it's interesting that you mentioned that, that, yeah, the Sif losing her hair is the story of Thor before his hammer, right? And that, as I was going to, two of the stories today, so one is Thor, Thor in his wedding dress, but then when Thor outsmarts the dwarf, that that is at Thor's daughter's wedding. Kind of. It's like his, Thor, his daughter is like potentially engaged to this dwarf, or the dwarf claims that she is. It's not, it's not quite, it's not quite Thor. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> what, not just wrecking the wedding. What is it when you show up at the wedding uninvited? Uh, crash it. Yeah. He's not quite Thor crashing a wedding, right? But that, uh, something almost to that nature, that part of, part of Thor's hero's journey is connecting with the feminine, right? There's, 
a little bit of that uh, through some of his stories. And, and then it's a really interesting question, right? What was Thor doing before he had his hammer, right? Was he just eating a lot and drinking a lot of ale? Was, you know, what, what did he do with his time, right? What was, what was Thor before his hammer? Um, he had his wife, Sif, right? Clearly they were married already, but there's a piece we don't get, but I think the, the part of Thor in his wedding dress so that he can get his uh, hammer back is a little bit of them creating that story, right? That we don't have stories of Thor before his hammer, but we do have Thor losing his hammer and having to get it back. And I guess it goes a little bit back to that part of, you know, um, the hero's journey being a metaphor for becoming a man, right? And actually I was reading Epictetus this morning and he was talking about, you know, how do you, how do you realize that you have a God within yourself? Or maybe that's just your soul, another, depending what word you want to use. To, to become the king archetype, right? I talked about that, I think at the end last week, is also the father archetype, right? So we have Thor and his relationship with his father in several of these stories. And then also with Thor, the, the, the Albus Maul and Thor being a father to his daughter, that that I think is, um, goes back. that's one of the steps here in Thor becoming, you know, the full warrior, as we said. And anything yeah. you have there, Sean, that's just kind of my sort of, sort of recap and uh, connecting into a few myths that we're, we're not emphasizing today, but that are uh, very much his early journey. The, uh, well, and so this is where like the, the story, like the timeline is like not, like as as we mentioned, the timeline is not like a real thing because I do think there's something to be said about Thor and his children. Like where Thor is like part of that's like part of Thor's growth into being more than just a warrior. He's got to be a father, right? So like we saw uh, Magni. We briefly mentioned Magni last week in the episode where Thor kills Hrungnir. But like this this week um, with his daughter Thrud getting married, we saw him play a fatherly figure who's like, well, there's no way that I'm going to let my daughter marry this slimy dwarf. So like I, I do think that there's something there like where Thor has to like become what Odin wanted from him, if that makes sense. Yeah, and that idea that you know Thor never quite is going to literally be the king of Asgard, that he has to figure out how to lead a little more, something like that, and cer- certainly to lead himself, if not lead other people. So a little bit of my analysis before, but then I'm sure I'll have some more ideas as we get through the uh, the myths we're actually looking at today. Sure. Yeah. And, and one other note, I know you mentioned uh, Loki um, earlier. I had thought since like we, we're not really discussing Loki too much in this two-part series, I did think about doing like an um, Thor's journey, like episode 2.5, like after the fact where we just discuss specifically his relationship with Loki right. because they are companions uh, sometimes. And then like Loki clearly fears Thor in Locusena. And then Thor also plays a part in capturing Loki after the fact. So yeah. Um, that might be something that we that we explore. It is that part because it's very significant to Thor and Loki together, right? That's it's, and whether that's co- covered under the Thor stories or the Loki stories, or is that its own little part, you know, Thor and Loki? And just that part, you know, as I've said, right, that that Loki is a lot like Odin, right? Thor is actually Odin's son, and this way that Sean has created the timeline is really really useful. I think you know, I don't, I don't know if I quite would have uh, framed it that it, you know, of course, there's the the origin stories, how all the gods came to be. And then there's Odin. He's kind of the original. He's the OG, right? And then that's that part, right? Is it is it that Odin is being the trickster, helping Thor mature? Or is it Loki being the trickster, kind of tricking Thor into maturing, right, in some way? That's that part, I, th- you know, I think, as we said, it's it's all archetypal. Some of these stories, you know, probably don't go in order. They're just like two versions of the same kind of. Cool. Um, so we're actually going to be discussing uh, Thor briefly because we've, we've done episodes on all of these stories. So we're briefly going to go through them. Um, so we're going to start with Garrod's quartz, and I wanted to make a note here. 
that this story is from Scott Scoppermall from the Proceta, and it's told directly after the story of Thor's duel with Frungnir, um, which we discussed last week. So you can make that make of that what you will. Um, but just as far as like any potential continuity that Snorri himself added, this took place right after um, the duel with Frungnir. Um, so anyway, to summarize, Loki, actually here, Loki does play a part. Loki puts on, after probably stealing Frigg's falcon shape, and flies into Garrod's hall through a window. Garrod had his guards seize the bird, though Loki almost did escape. Garrod su- suspected that the bird was actually a person, but unsuccessfully got Loki to fess up to who he was. So Garrod locks Loki in a chest for three months. Loki then tells Garrod who he was at that point. So in an agreement to let him go, Loki promised to find a way to have Thor go into Garrod's court without his hammer Mjolnir and his belt of strength. Um, and Thor, for some reason here, agrees. He agrees to go to Garrod's court without these, these items. On the way there, Thor stayed with a giantess named Grid, um, his half-brother Vidar's mother, so one of o- Odin's lovers. She told him to be wary of Garrod as he is very cunning. So she lent Thor her own belt of strength, iron gloves, and a staff to help him on the journey. Um, and I want to make a note here because uh, if you look at Thor as like this uh, mighty warrior who can like instill fear in the hearts of giants, you almost get the vibe that like that's that's his whole personality. And like maybe he like is less likely to accept help or advice from others, but maybe he he at this point is starting to realize that it is necessary. Well, and, and that is the uh, the point right in already right in this story as I was kind of anticipating Thor somehow connecting with the feminine. There's something he needs from the feminine, right? And it goes, well, Thor already has his hammer and he is the great bane of all giants. Why does he need anybody's help, right? But you got to trick him to let go of his hammer so that now he needs help, right? That part, yeah. you know, that, that last time he needed a party. He needed, you know, to to have friends to support him, right? And that now he needs, you know, whatever it is, the staff and the gloves are meant to represent. It's kind of that part, right? That how these, uh, to get the weapon and, you know, the armor, or some of the items, from a mother figure, right here, it's a stepmother. That, that needs to happen somehow archetypally, right? You know, the, the mind, the unconscious just knows that. But it's like, well, but why does he need that? He already has a hammer. Well, we need Loki here to get him to let go of his hammer, right? It's, um, but I would say it's not just a plot device. It's that idea that you know, sometimes you have to put down your, I'm sure I'm the greatest, you know, slayer of giants, to develop a little more complexity and real depth of uh, what you need to understand. So. Yeah. And so we'll see with this story in the next one, like Thor does need to accept help when he does not have his hammer. And uh, that's one thing um, I know you, I, I think at this point you have watched the Thor movies, um, the Marvel movies. I think I'm up to date on all those. Yeah. I actually just watched the new, uh, or one of the new Spider-Man, the uh, No Way Home. Yeah. Oh, nice. Well, good. I'm glad you caught, I'm glad that you finally caught up, but uh, you you know, where what's that? Needs, uh, Spider-Man needs friends. There's three Spider-Mans. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, but like you'll see in the first Thor movie, he doesn't have his hammer because he can't pick it up. And like he's not worthy at that point. Then in the third movie, he his hammer gets destroyed by his sister, Hela, because Hela is his sister in the Marvel Universe. And then he um, he doesn't really, I guess Mjolnir is put together in Thor 4, but Jane Foster is the one that can wield it. And it like kind of affects him there too. So like you can see that the Marvel movies did t- like take some inspiration from these myths where... Thor maybe feels like he is not his full self without his hammer. 
And it's kind he of ends like up that cycling yeah. hero's journey, right? It's not just because the way the myth was written where they were like, oh, well, we want to write this story, but we know there's already all these stories where Thor has his hammer. We need a plot device where he loses his hammer. It's also that idea that you have to cycle through these things, right? You get knocked down a notch, right? You, you fall to the underworld and then you build yourself back up again. And then the idea is maybe the next time you build yourself up even better. It's this like cyclical process of uh, improvement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, moving on with uh, the story, he Thor ends up using the gifts provided to him. First, he stops one of Garrod's daughters um, who tried to prevent Thor from crossing a river, this daughter being Gyalp. And I forgot what she did. Like she, I think this text said that she like straddled the river, which somehow like increased the water level. I think some people say that she was actually pissing in it or something. But, something between, you know, using magic and but something about like with magic to uh, increase it and... Uh... In what manner do you use magic? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like Thor is using the staff to like wade through the river at that point. He gets through it because he throws a stone at her face and hits her. And then once he gets to uh, Garrod's courts, they give him like this barn or something to sleep in. And there's only one chair. So Thor sits on it. And as he's sitting on it, he it starts to rise um, towards the ceiling. So he uses the staff again to like um, push back down. Turns out. Uh, turns out Garrod's daughter, Gyalp, who I guess didn't die, and the other daughter, shit. Oh yeah, Gripe. Her name was Gripe. He pushed back down with the staff and he broke both of their backs, which is kind of interesting to me because I think I made a joke that um, when we did this episode that it sounds like the sisters were like flirting with Thor or like they were playing games with him because like they wanted him to show up at the castle. So why is Gyalp like trying to prevent him from crossing the water? And maybe it was like their own weird way, weird way of flirting and they got their backs broken by the mighty Thor as a result of it. I remember when we did that story, it really seemed like it. And it was really hard to not be too inappropriate making jokes about, you know, Thor and his, his phallic weapons, right. And things like that. And, and what is this all, all about? Right. But the, the thing that really, I, I imagine I mentioned it before, but really stood out to me here, right. In Harbard's Liad, right. Why can he not cross the water? Cause he's afraid to get his club wet. They, they said it kind of translated as afraid to get his prick wet. Um, and it's a question, do they actually mean sword or club or his hammer, right? But you got a metal hammer, it's going to rust in the water, right? That's just pragmatic. Now he's got a staff and that actually helps you get through the water. So it's another very masculine weapon, but he got this one from the stepmother. And now he's able to conquer the feminine, clearly, and breaking their backs, right? Um, yeah. And it's not just to be crude, right? It is actually that something about how how do you master your inner feminine side, right? How do you not just have this insecure masculinity that's going to get rusted and can't touch water and rather uh, you can swim in both. You can, you know, be comfortable with the masculine and the feminine. So it's a perfect lead up as we'll jump into him in the wedding dress in a moment. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it's funny because like right here, he does need the staff to get across the water. And we discussed another story last week with Thor's fishing trip where he was in the water trying to catch Jormungandr. And then I think he, he needs to wade the water with like a net to catch Loki um, after Lokasena. So like, I think it's, there's always like a theme with Thor and water, which I think is funny, but. He was never going to be able to cross the river with the hammer. Again, going back, these things all being metaphorical, right? But then as we said here, you know, he's after Jormungandr with a fishing pole, right? And he's going across here with a wooden staff. What is the difference between a, you know, mighty hammer Mjolnir and a fishing rod or a staff? Right, it's something about the flexibility, and that, that, that's what's shown in the uh, the Thor movie you're just referring to, Love and Thunder, where he has the hammer that's been shattered. Right, it's it's strong, but it's brittle. 
right? Versus something that's flexible. The staff is not the greatest weapon the world has ever seen, right? But it's more appropriate for some purposes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so then after after Thor breaks um, Garrett's daughter's backs, uh, he goes into the actual hall where Garrett like wants to have a contest with him, which is interesting because Garrett at that point tries to kill Thor by throwing like a hot iron at him. Thor, because he's wearing these gloves that he was given, he catches it, then he throws it at Garrett and kills him. And so that's the story. It kind of ends like with another... It's a surprise, like Thor kills another giant. Um, that's what he does. He's the slayer of giants. But I think this is interesting to have this week as opposed to last week, just because he does accept help in the form of advice and gifts from Grid. I also wonder why he went in the first place. Like, why would he go to Garrett's court to, to clean up Loki's mess? And it's almost like this, like, sense of honor or something. But yeah, it's, it's duty, right? You know, it goes back whether Odin starts the fights or Loki starts the fights. Thor needs to do it. Because that's what Thor does, right? And um, you know, there's these these lesser men, these magicians who don't know <laughs> how to actually solve fights, and so that's what Thor does. But but then that also that image here of the gloves, right? It's a weird thing. You know, Thor would never have thought to bring gloves. It's only his stepmother says, you know, you're going to need these gloves. And then the thing where he doesn't have his hammer to throw it and you know throw it and smash the head of a giant, but he almost makes his own hammer as he pulls some iron out of the fire and throws it. It's almost the same image, right? That rather than the the hammer that was just given to him, right? That was made by somebody else. That idea that he's, you know, he's almost making his own hammer, that he's pulling it out of the forge. There's a very uh, alchemical kind of symbol there of things being heated and in change. It's not a completed hammer. It's a, a red hot piece of iron. Yeah, not definitely. And in both in both two of his wins in this episode are him throwing something. In this case, it was the hot iron, which I thought was interesting. But we're moving on to the next story, we are going to be briefly going over Thor's wedding, another story where he needs to accept advice from people because he doesn't have his hammer. So in Thrym's uh, Fida from the Poetic Edda, the giant Thrym steals Mjolnir and Thor wakes up not knowing where it is. And the gods are very worried because the Slayer of Giants doesn't have his primary weapon. So they advise a way to get it back after Thrym says, well, I want to marry Freya. I'll give you the hammer back if you marry Freya. So Thor puts on a wedding dress disguised as Freya and pulls off this ruse to where he attends the wedding. Eventually, when the hammer is placed in, quote, Freya's lap, he uses it to kill all the giants at the uh, <laughs> at the at the wedding. So I think it was Hemdall who offered the solution that Thor put on a wedding dress. Um, but there was like this council where Thor also accepted help. And advice without without his hammer. And also, I just wanted to make a note that Thor was dressed in drag because he was wearing a wedding dress. So um, not to get too topical with today's uh, news, but in, as we know, in 2020s in the United States of America, that would certainly ruffle some feathers. Well, not to go not to go too political, but rather just to go psychoanalytical. Why is it so offensive to people for a man to put on a dress? Right. Why does that get people? I mean, right. Look at the news, right? People are, I try not to look at the news, but people are so bent out of shape about it. I mean, incredibly so to the point of violence, right? Why does it offend them so much, right? That, that they can't possibly comprehend their inner feminine, right? That idea that if, if they pictured themselves in a wedding dress or a drag show, I mean, what, what would happen, right? You know, take, take one of these guys, I don't know, from some, one of these states in the United States, right? And, and yeah, you're going to, you know, the challenge, you know, to to uh to honor your family and your tribe, you must dress in drag and go do a drag show. 
And what's the worst that happens? Some some people see you. I mean, you're wearing enough makeup and a wig, nobody can tell it's you, right? Like, what's what's the worst that happens? I don't know. Maybe you got to shave your beard off if you're a Viking to uh, dress in drag. That'd be a problem. But uh, <laughs> well, then Thor just wears the veil right to hide his face. So. Yeah, I, I forgot exactly. I think he does wear like the full dress and everything. And Thor himself is like very embarrassed by it, from what I remember. Like he he was like really annoyed that he had to do it, and it, he almost like had to overcompensate for it like by eating i think he drank like three kegs of meat or something and he had like two oxes so he almost like made up for it like by just eating a bunch of meat and like drinking a bunch of mead but uh it, it worked out he ended up getting his hammer back so <laughs> but like it's not like he uh it's not like he was like wow i'm a new person i'm gonna go wear dresses all the time um so i don't know it's right but by the by the end he he figured something out, right? And also he figured out that it, it's not going to destroy him. He, he dress up in a dress. It won't, it won't kill you, right? <laughs> you know, a little something must have matured or learned there, right? And then he mentioned there's a detail that he takes the hammer from Freya's lap. Can you remember anything of why Freya was holding onto the hammer then? Well, no, no. He was, he was disguised as Freya because they, they like gave him, yeah, they gave him the hammer and like then Thor had his hammer and he like didn't have to pretend to be Freya anymore. That's how they kind of handed it back to him sort of as a wedding gift. Is that what it's yeah. Like? Yeah. Repeatedly, these kind of images, right? That you, you need to be taken down a notch. You need to diminish something. That's kind of that, that ego death. But then you build back up something that is this, you know, source of strength and focus. You know, why you can't just... And as I noticed in that previous one with the, uh, the forge and the molten iron, right? That part of... Can you just be given a hammer? Maybe to make this a little more um, relevant, what I'm trying to say, you know, if you're just given a code of here's how you live your life, right? This is what you need to do. You need to go to college. You need to do this job. You need to do the same job your dad did, right? That you, you know, here's your religion. And it says everything about how you're supposed to live your life, right? And it's all just handed to you and just do it. That it's fake. I think I said something like this last week, right? That idea that it's not the real you, right? And and maybe you actually find the way where you, you know, you do want to be a lawyer just like your dad, or you do want to... Um, follow all the rules of Christianity, the way it's written in the Bible, but you need to find that for yourself. So if you're just handed it, it it's a mask. It's a, it's, it's a fake show you're putting on that you need to lose all of it to then rebuild, you know, what you are, forge your own hammer, basically, right? Is uh, That doesn't mean you can't do Christianity, right? It's just that, no, come to it. How do you come to it? Honestly, right? It's uh, my controversial, another one of my controversial points for today. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, I guess moving forward, uh, the next story that we were going to discuss is Thor tricking Alvis the dwarf, um, which I like after like, and I think even like after we did this episode, which was at some point last year, I, I really thought about it. And like, it, it very much mirrors um, Voth Ruth in the small where Odin has like a contest with the Riddle Weaver. I mean, obviously, I think Odin had that contest with Voth because he wanted to be able to say like, I defeated supposedly the smartest being in the cosmos in a game of wits. Thor had other ambitions here, but when you think of like Harbard's Laud and Odin clearly like manipulating Thor in this game of insults to where Thor got embarrassed, you have to like wonder, did Thor, if like this story takes place after that, did Thor like actually learn something from Odin? And does this story take place after Baldur's death where Thor needed to like elevate himself to that most powerful son or like that most um the pride of the Aesir like Boulder almost or like almost was 
It's, it's um, somewhere in between there, right? In that part, yeah, that Thor is learning to do a little bit of that Odin stuff. He's learning to do a little bit of that trickster stuff, right? And don't you need to... It goes back to the idea, right, where Thor is just like, I'm honorable and I only fight honorably, right? And with my hammer. And it's like, no, you need to learn how to fight dirty, right? And that you need to be tricked to learn how to trick others. It feels awful to be tricked. Loki cut your wife's hair off and he made you dress up in a wedding dress and all of this. Ah, but did you learn how to be tricky now? Yeah, it's interesting. So to summarize this story really quick, and we sort of touched on this. um, So Alvis the Dwarf wanted to marry Thor's daughter, Thrud, which I I think is a a great name, by the way. I think it means might. Yeah. So that his daughter is his might. And that idea, you know, if we're talking about it archetypally, right, that it's, you know, the, the daughter is also something kind of like the inner child, right? And it's the inner feminine child, right? So that Thor is trying to um, rescue this from the, you know, the dwarves, which represent this anger and resentment and really kind of ugly uh, feelings. Yeah, For sure. I, I think it's like cool because like when you read like the pro set or something, Snorri will, if like there's like a random character, Snorri will input like what that means, like or what like that name means and it like shows you that that being is like the personification of like some like aspect of nature or like some form of like human inhibition um so that's very interesting that thor's daughter like her name would mean something like might but anyway alvis the dwarf wanted to marry thrud um i think he may have even claimed that they were already engaged to be married thor did not like the match and this exchange between them, like Thor was like saying, well, who are you to be able to marry my daughter? And it kind of like evolved into a string of questions or like a, like a back and forth between the two of them, which you find out after the fact was a stall tactic by Thor because the sun would come up and turn Alvis to stone. So no more potential match. And Thor did not even have to lift his hammer to get rid of this potential problem of this dwarf wanting to marry his daughter. And I guess to answer your question earlier, I don't believe his hammer showed up. So <laughs> um, you could also make the case that this was before it, but it kind of doesn't fall in line with our made up timeline. But again, like I think this is very interesting because Thor does have a daughter. He's playing the, the part of a father that wants the best for his daughter. And maybe he has bad, um, th- maybe he has like sinister, unwarranted thoughts on Alvis the dwarf just because he's a dwarf. But like, you know, he obviously wants what's best for his daughter. So, like, you wonder if he has evolved into this, like, father figure like his father Odin. You know, it's, he's he's getting the Havamal virtues. He knows you can't just kill your potential future son-in-law with a hammer in your home, right? That's that's not allowed. <laughs> but you can't trick him into turning to stone in the sunlight, right? I mean, that's, hey, I didn't do that. That was the sunlight, right? So that, <laughs> you know, it's how do you, how do you solve this problem, right? That this is not the right uh, husband for thread but without just like murdering someone in your home. Like that's not, it's not okay, Thor. Right? Yeah, exactly. What's, what's funny is so a, a couple of things in uh, Carolyn Larrington's. So one is that I, 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 especially like, you know, especially for today that we emphasize this, the context of the poem, because most of the poem is just, it's an, a chance to show off Kennings, right? It's, Thor's like, you know, well, do you know this Kenning? And he's like, yes, I know this one. And do you know this Kenning? And yes, I know this one and back and forth. But that they're saying it's, um, one way to show off a range of kennings, but maybe also there's a lot of taboo words. There's a lot of real kind of like euphemisms and um, interesting kind of very crude ways to say things, but in a polite way. Um, if, if I wasn't busy translating the house uh, long, I would have spent more time on this poem, I'm sure, this week. The other one that just stands out to me is so in Carolyn Larrington's version, you know, the poem is called Alvis Mall, 
but it's translated here as all wise sayings. And I was trying to find like, where, where is Alvis Maul? I can't find it. Because when I read all wise sayings, I think, oh, aren't those the sayings of Odin? Like the sayings of the Allfather? But it's no, all wise is Alvis Maul. And that part, somewhere in here, I just had a, a thought of like that, that Alvis is trying to do the thing that Odin does, right? When, when Odin goes and he's stealing a giant woman, now Alvis Maul is here trying to steal an Aesir woman, right? And so not that, not that Alvis is Odin, but that he's sort of like, goes back to an, an archetype that is one of these real shadow parts of Odin. This is that same type of character. So that really this being the, the reverse of Harbard's Liad. And it goes back, right? Harbard is, we pretty much know is Odin, but he's, he's not yeah. Odin, he's, he's Harbard, right? And here we have Alvis. So I don't think Odin would go into disguise and try to um, marry his own granddaughter. But then again, Norse mythology is creepy enough. You never know. But uh, <laughs> but I think more likely it's just it's it's these these archetypal patterns, right? And this is a you know a, a Odin like figure who sneaks around and you know trying to steal women and all of that. Um, yeah, and Thor's right. yeah, yeah, which is yeah, which is not what he did in Harvard's Law. He like had this he had this like problem, but he outwitted it. And uh, like I I really think it's cool when you think about this with the connections of not only Harvard's Law, but as I mentioned, like Bath Ruth and the Small. But yeah, like it shows that there is like some growth or this this like gain of wisdom with Thor that shows that he is like turning into more than just being that blunt instrument with a hammer where every problem is typically a nail. Oh, man. Um, so I just figured I just figured out the glove because <laughs> not not just does he need the staff to cross the water, but he needed metal gloves. And previously he was afraid to hide in the glove and he was ashamed of it. And now he's got iron gloves and that uh, <laughs> I just made a connection from two, uh, two stories ago. That, uh, it, it somehow works. Yeah. Like he, he got embarrassed by being living inside of a glove. Um, like the mighty Thor lived inside a glove for a night. And uh, now he is wielding a iron glove and using it to kill his enemy without his hammer. Yeah, Thor's not afraid to go in the glove. He's wearing his stepmother's iron gloves. Right. So not trying to make things. <laughs> Anyways, John, better move on. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because there's going to be like at some point there's going to be like um like some doctor or like some professor who teaches Norse mythology and he's like they're talking about fucking gloves they're 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 trying to make a connection here they're idiots but thanks for bringing that up dude yeah that's yeah that's the a lot of the Jungian archetypal stuff always sounds strange to people until you spend enough time with it and then you're like it just makes too much sense yeah so we can we can move on and maybe I should have included this. Uh, Alvis Small after we discussed Baldur's funeral, like if Alvis Small did take place afterwards and Thor like knew he needed to evolve into like the pride son of Odin. But um, anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about Baldur's funeral where we are also seeing a, a theme here where Thor might not like dwarves. So there's not much to say with Thor's role at the funeral, but um, there's a couple things here. So Thor blesses the funeral pyre with Mjolnir. And as he's like doing so, this dwarf named Lit runs in front of him. Thor kicks him into the fire and kills him. So I thought that was interesting. Like Thor did get his hammer in the first place. It was created by dwarves. But like he obviously thinks that his daughter is above marrying a dwarf. And right here, he just kicks a dwarf into um, the fire, which ended up being like the fourth death at that funeral. But yeah, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts there? Like maybe it was, maybe this isn't. (laughs) Really, a big connection. I'm hoping it is. But when we did that episode, I I wanted to really search and find depth and depth in this. And I I think there always is more. You know, there's something in there, even if. But sometimes I think maybe the authors didn't even know what it was. It's just, just like in your dreams, it means something. But can you can you sort it out? But I'll I'll come back. I think at the more at the end um, to the idea of yeah, Thor 
and his, his war against the dwarves, or it's not just his war against the giants, it's also against the dwarves. And that part of what do they represent? What do the giants represent? Uh, other than just, yeah, Thor is, <laughs> Thor is destructive. Yes. It keeps killing things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But like, like he is at the funeral and he's like blessing the, the funeral pyre with his hammer. And like, again, like just like not to bring it up for the fifth time this episode, but like at what point if you lose like a father or if you lose like an older sibling, like, do you have to step in and like, like be the man of the house or like does Thor need to be the man of the house at this point? And, and to do so, do you need to kill a little dwarf part of yourself? Right. So that's my, yeah, where I'm like, no, it definitely means something. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not sure if you've read. I, I, I'm not sure if you've watched The Last Kingdom um, or read the books, but uh, like I, I, I read, I, like I read through all of them, and it's a great series to read. But in the first, I guess the twelve books deals with a character named Uhtred, and like in the first um, chapter of the first book, his older brother dies, and like his father immediately like renames him what his brother's name was, and then what like Uhtred. And he like tells him that he's like the new man of the house. He's going to be the next lord of this castle, um, and that kind of like starts the whole series. So like, I, I, I that's just like obviously a loose connection to the Last Kingdom series, but um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners do like that show. But I think, I think that's really like a theme of, that you see often, yeah. yeah. And that part, oh man, and this goes to the real dark side of Loki, right? That Thor can't fully step into his role until Loki gets Balder killed, right? That's true, right? That's pretty ugly, but that is very true. I would say. Yeah. So anyway, moving on to our last uh, story here, it's going to be Thor at Ragnarok. So on like the actual battle at Vigrid Fields, after Odin has raised the banners, Thor advances side by side with him. Thor is unable to assist Odin or save his father from Fenrir as he himself is going to be fighting his rival Jormungandr, who he failed to kill on the fishing trip. So I, I wanted to make a note here because the story of Ragnarok, it's told in Voluspa from the Poetic Edda, but it's also told in Gilfaganin from the Prose Edda. Snorri quotes what he says is a poem called Sibyl's Prophecy, which is actually Voluspa in Gilfaganin. So he briefly says what happens. He actually doesn't mention Thor's fate here, um, but the portion of Voluspa, which he quotes, apparently does, but it actually doesn't mention well, I guess I'll, I'll get into the story. So, like, Thor kills Jormungandr successfully this time, but not before he's bitten by Jormungandr. And the Venom kills Thor after he's a- after he's able to walk nine steps. When Snorri like puts down puts or like input the portion of Olaf that details that it doesn't really it's not like cut and dry like saying that's what happens. So I went to Crawford's version of the Poetic Edda, um, and so I'll read this really quick. It says, then Thor comes, Earth's son, Odin's son, to fight the Midgard serpent. The protector of Midgard will kill that serpent in his rage. But all humankind will die out of the world when Thor falls after only nine steps, struck down by the venom of the honorless serpent. So because of Crawford's writing style, and I know we discussed this in previous episodes, he makes it more readable, I guess, for modern readers. So I did find this other translation to see if there was anything different in an older translation. So this one is by Anderson. I believe it's like in the 1850s. It says, then the famous son of Flodin comes, Odin's son comes to fight with the Midgard serpent, the Midgard, the serpent Midgard's ward. In wrath slays the serpent nine paces away 
goes the son of Fjorgen, he totters wounded by the fierce serpent. So like, it's kind of like, it's kind of interesting that the story of Thor, like walking nine steps and having this like badass death, like is kind of like maybe lost in translation because Snorri didn't actively say it either. And I'm sorry, does that make sense? I know I just went on a rant there, but. That, exactly that question is because I'm, I'm really diving into some old Norse translation and I don't really know how, but that part when I look at it, sometimes I'm like, I don't think it says what it says. And again, I, I don't speak old Norse, but when I, when I try to learn to, right? Because does Thor fall? Or does Thor totter, right? Is he killed or is he wounded, right? And I really love the significance of that idea. Like, after the battle with Jormungand, does Thor live? Does the spirit of Thor live, right? Does does Thor die and he's reborn, right? You know, Thor dies, but his son lives, right? There's all these different ways to say. It's not so literal about, you know, like, but no, was, was the poison enough to kill him or not, right? But it's the idea, but, but does Thor live on, right, as a... Uh, does the idea of Thor live on, right? Is yeah, I like that you caught this. Yeah, and it's like I'm sure he did die because I think like because Snorri does mention that his son survives, his son Magni, yeah. um, and I think Mogi is another son of Thor that survives. I I should have had the book in front of me, but I don't. But um, yeah, like so I do think that he did die, and I do think that with all the other translations, like Thor does die by the poison, but um. I, I did find that very interesting that like Snorri didn't actively say that, but he goes into depth on um, like Frey's death. He goes into death on, or to, he briefly mentions like Hemdall and Loki killing each other. Yeah. And he mentions Odin being swallowed by Fenrir. So like, I think it's just funny. He didn't mention Thor's fate, but he did mention Thor being side by side with Odin, unable to help him because he was fighting Jormungandr. Right. When the, the way the words are here, right. That in wrath, he slays the serpent, right. The serpent is slain, right. Very dead. But that Thor, you know, and maybe he does die eventually, right? But that he sort of, you know, everyone else is clearly dead. And Thor is the one in the movie who is sitting there struggling and saying goodbye to his son. And he's, this poison hasn't quite killed me yet. And then dramatically, he finally croaks, right? Is uh, <laughs> clearly how the movie goes in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so like, if you look at this battle... Again, like it's it's some it seems like because Thor was right next to Odin, and maybe this was an obvious call because Thor is such a great warrior, so Odin would want Thor to be near him in battle. But the fact that Thor and Odin were side by side, I kind of like to pretend that Odin was proud of Thor at this point. Like maybe where in Harbert's Lot he went out of his way to like knock Thor down a peg because he had a lesson to learn. But like right here, I like to think that Thor became what he was supposed to be and then he has like a pretty badass death. He finally slays Jormungandr. He dies himself. But uh, yeah, anyway, I guess, David, my question for you is, did a Thor die a good death? And I think we did this for Odin as well. Well, there's another a point you had put in the uh, the notes here, how Thor is unable to assist or to save his father, right? But that that Odin had to fight his own battle, right? That, that Odin needed to fight the wolf. And, and you can look into what's the significance of that, right? What does the wolf represent that the the king needed to fight and then that Thor needed to battle the serpent, right? Especially knowing all the things we've kind of explored about Odin, right? You can't get your son to fight your battles for you. <laughs> you're the father, you're the king. You need to fight your own battles, right? And then when he, then Odin kind of has to really face like, yeah, I have an impossible opponent and my son also has an impossible opponent, right? That it's not about, um, you know, any longer, like I need to make things more difficult for Thor, right? He's got, the hardest battle he can fight as well. So it's something there, I think, where, yeah, that, that you say that Odin admire him and also that Odin 
maybe Odin finally overcomes a bit of his own, uh, you know, ego and narcissism here as he uh, sees Thor a little more accurately and, and admirably. Right. Um, yeah. Which also does speak a lot to Odin's own growth um, as well. So. And that Odin still gets swallowed by the wolf. I think Odin already had a, you know, a very shadow figure. He's very much in a dark place. So he's going to get swallowed by the wolf, but then that Thor wrestling with the serpent, right. And that I've, I said before the image, the, the Ouroboros, the snake eating its tail is both masculine and feminine. So there's something there. And sometimes the dragon or the you know serpent can be seen a bit feminine, but also the serpent can kind of represent some uh, passions, right? And Thor is constantly in a battle against his passions. Um, so that's the, the final fight he has to, he has to fight. Um, and so, yeah, does he, does he die a good death, right? That's the idea. If he dies a good death, then his memory lives on, right? Um, and so I, th I think, I think so. Yeah. No, I agree. I think, I think it was part, like he did slay this um, beast of Ragnarok. Um, and like, we know like fate plays a part in this. Like, I think we discussed um, Odin, when he learns what he knew about Ragnarok from the dead Sirius and Volaspa, he also did find out that their world was going to be reborn. So you do know that this was like fated to happen or you, like he knew that Baldur was going to die. He knew that he was going to die, but he knew that Baldur was going to be um, reborn. And I guess you could ask yourself, like, did he know Thor was supposed to die there as well? I don't know, but it's yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, the short answer is, yeah, I think he oh, yeah. had a pretty good death. And then that part that, right, that Odin, Odin is swallowed by the wolf. He loses to the wolf. Right. But then it's uh, his, his other son, Vidar, right? Vidar, yeah. And then so that he gets to become a hero, become a real warrior. And then does, yeah, him and him and Balder again. It goes back to the idea, like, that Balder's kind of an ideal. He's an idea. Balder's not very real. He doesn't really do much in the real world. But that Balder's definitely the idea that lives on, right? That's something like that, I think, is uh, very clearly stated in the myth. Yeah. But, yeah, well, he's sort of, like, propped up. He may be propped up as, like, a Christ-like figure by Snorri, so... <laughs> Right. That it's just an idea. Nobody actually gets to be Balder. Balder doesn't actually do much, but you need this, this idea in your head, right? Of the, uh, should I dive into some of the kind of, you know, analytical or meaningful things I take from it? Yeah, sure. That idea of kind of the, you know, the, the golden child, right? And it's plenty of things in life. If you, if you have a father like Odin or parents like Odin, that you might not feel like that, right? That, you know, he likes Balder. And if you're Thor, you're kind of second best, right? But to find that in yourself, Right to see, to see the gold, to see how you know spectacular spectacular you are. Right is one of those things that are needed along this hero's journey. Um, I think I mentioned before the idea of the uh, with the. Did I mention that poem, the uh, Iron John, the Wild Man, and there's the the boy who has he has a golden toy at first, and it, it gets taken by the Wild Man, and then he reveals his golden hair. I can't remember how much I actually went into that myth. Yeah, I don't know. I remember Water Jar Boy, but <laughs> Water Jar Boy is the best. That that's one that has like you know in such a succinct you know condensed way. It has all the important uh, themes, I would say. But just to talk, I guess maybe more broadly on that idea of the hero's journey, and what is that really trying to represent for mature masculinity? And we bring in masculinity, and then it brings in this: Are you saying you know toxic masculinity and it's men versus women? And is that anti-feminist? But really, just to try to say it as like becoming a mature adult, right? Not to make it so gendered. The idea that part of this is you need to understand the feminine, right? You need to connect with your inner feminine. And maybe that helps you to have a healthy relationship with the outer women there in the world. When you, if you understand your feminine, maybe you understand women a little better, right? That would be, 
usually yeah. useful, right? Um, as a man. And then, and then it is an interesting question for how, how are women to take all of these male hero stories, right? Cause there's plenty of good, uh, there's, there's probably not enough, but there, there's a fair number of good, um, you know, women's myths, right? You know, stories about a female protagonist and what are the myths that women write themselves, right? But um, there, there's not as many preserved in our you know, history as uh, the, the masculine heroes. But what is, yeah, what is it women take from this besides, under, I mean, one is understanding the men in their life and what is the struggle they're going through with their hammers and their staffs and they're losing their hammer and they're trying to get it back and <laughs> they need to wear a wedding dress and all of that is, uh, what does that all mean metaphorically, right? Becoming a mature adult, right? And I think it does come back to the, the kind of question you said of, yeah, what's the significance of Thor kicking the dwarf into the fire, right? Of realizing that he needs to rescue his his might, his inner daughter um, from dwarves, right? That, that I think I've, there's probably more I could explore on the topic of what, what, what actually the dwarves represent in Norse mythology, but part of it is very much resentment. It's this underground thing you don't want to admit is there and it's it's always lusting after and trying to capture women right and it's doing things by trickery and it's things like that and that you need to first you need to see that they're there underground and then you need to kind of try to separate them the part that maybe you can kill them but the idea that maybe you have to integrate right it's not just to hate the parts of your shadow it's sometimes to learn how to integrate them and love them you know, that goes back again, right? That Thor doesn't kill his son-in-law. He just lets him get petrified and <laughs> turn into a stone statue, right? So that Yeah, well, his potential son-in-law. Right, yeah. But that uh, there's something that's not proper about just going in and smashing him in the face with a hammer. But you also can't let it run wild. You got to get some containment on that. I don't know. I'm a little bit wandering in, in metaphors today, Sean. How, how do you take the things towards, how, how does someone make that useful and uh, apply it to their life? Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know, and that's where I guess the the, the listener's interpretation comes into play. It's the best thing about these myths is because you you take your where you are in the present moment, and you see what the myth tells you about where you need to go. Right? What is what is the thing from this I need to use? Right? Um, and it goes, yeah. Where are you in the hero's journey? That is quite the question. And the idea I said earlier of the hero's journey being a cycle that you have to go through multiple times. Right? You go through it the first time, ah, and now you have a hammer. You go through it again. Ah, now I had to give up my hammer. Right? You go through it again. Ah, now maybe I understand my feminine side. Right? That that these are all the the journeys to go on. And uh, I'm trying to think of anything else to make it practical because I know I'm just wandering in metaphorical images today. But um, no, I don't know. Maybe like I guess like I, I thinking about your comments on like what are what is a female supposed to make of these these stories? Because of course, like these story these themes can be applied to like anybody's life, but it's also I, I don't I don't know if you've been able to like look at our the the podcast stats on Spotify, yeah. but I think like only twenty percent of our listeners identify as female. <laughs> so maybe I mean maybe these stories are more for what people consider to be masculine characters. I know like in um the Thor's wedding episode, which we discussed when we actually went over that episode, Freya like they actually asked Freya to marry Thrym so Thor can get his hammer back, and she like told them to fuck off, which seemed rather humorous, but yeah. That it is, it's it's a more advanced question for a woman to use these stories to figure out how to make sense of your inner masculine, right? Just the way men need to get in touch with their inner feminine. Sometimes that women throughout the lifespan need to get in touch with their inner masculine. So that idea, right, of if if men are the enemy, and you know, I mean, you know, feminism and equality, right, certainly important, but to kind of you know to make men the enemy. 
Or are you actually rejecting a part of yourself that's your inner masculine that you need to care about and learn what to do with? Because it's probably, you know, looks kind of ugly sometimes, right? <laughs> but that, it, but it's exactly the same challenge. In one way, it's a gift that then women can look for the inner masculine and to see so many of these stories. For men, it's very hard to find the good stories about the inner feminine. Um, what is what is the feminine hero's journey? There's only a few good myths out there, but uh, you know, um, uh, Robert Johnson's uh, book *She*. It's about feminine development, but it's very useful for a man to make sense of the inner feminine. Uh, Marie Louise von Franz collects a lot of good kind of feminine hero journeys as well. Uh, there's one about the the girl with the silver hands. That's uh, I think that was from Johnson. In any case, that. There's something here to make use of, right? To to not just uh, whether it's uh, yeah. You look, you look at our culture and all the ugly things, right? Projecting your your uh, hatred of your inner, inner feminine out there, either on women or on men in drag, right? That no, learn to love that part of yourself, right? And then similarly for women, you see all these ugly things about things about men in society. How do you learn to love your inner masculine? It's a uh, an interesting challenge. Yeah, I still think no answers there. Just more of me <laughs> rambling. <laughs> That hopefully, yeah, for hopefully sure. you look at these myths, maybe that gives you an idea of being like, oh, I do see a little bit of myself in there, right? Do I see a little bit of myself in this dwarf or in Odin sometimes? And that's an unpleasant thing to see. Or can I see myself in Thor, right? And I, at first, I don't think there's any part of me that is, you know, as strong and powerful as, or, uh, you know, the, uh, the lust of eating as Thor. But then you see a part of yourself being like, oh, maybe I am a little bit Thor. And the idea, that's how you find your inner Balder, that you see that you are a a golden, a golden, uh, shining child of, uh, of Odin, right. It's by seeing yourself in these myths, I guess. So. Yeah. And like, I mean, if we do look at Thor's wedding episode, I mean, we all, like, I, I would imagine most of us, if not all of us have at some point been like, not embarrassed, but self-conscious of like our outward appearance. Right. And Thor obviously was like, was, he had to wear a wedding dress and like to him, like that was annoying to him. And it kind of like had to knock him down a peg. So I think like we all can relate to that at some point. Like, is my does my hair look okay? Like, do I like how does this shirt make me look? Type of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. That, but like, yeah, I think there's always there. There's always there. Yeah, it's interesting as you went there. I, I like it because yeah, some of those you focus on this outer self consciousness, but really that says something about how you feel about yourself on the inside, right? And that you, you can get too focused thinking about the outside part, but maybe the myths help you actually look. Look at what's the what's the inside part you don't like? That's the harder question. So. Yeah, definitely. All right, John, I think we're good for today. I'm definitely <laughs> wandering and rambling, probably especially when I don't have the camera, but I just, uh, I wander a bit more, I feel like. Yeah, I'm really hoping that I get this camera figured out. It kind of pisses me off, but we'll figure it out. We'll get through it. We'll, we'll call our tech support. I think you got a couple tech support guys to call. So, Yes, for sure. All right, John, you have a great rest of your day. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you as well. Thank you, David. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for listening to Between Two Ravens. If you've been enjoying our show, please write a five-star review on iTunes to help spread our podcast to a wider audience. See the show notes below for links to follow us on social media. Our podcast is part of the Walled Garden Podcast Network. The Walled Garden Philosophical Society is committed to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, virtue, and the divine, wherever it might be found. Visit thewalledgarden.com to learn more.